You are connected, and you are listening to Specifically for Seniors, the podcast for those in the Remember When generation. Today's podcast is available everywhere you listen to podcasts and with video at Specifically for Seniors YouTube channel. Now, here's your host, Dr. Larry Barsh. My guest on Specifically for Seniors today has presented more than 2,000 classes and events and written more than 70 magazine articles for Savoy Magazine, Culture Cheese Magazine, WGBH, and other print and online magazines. Adam Centimore is a professional certified food and wine educator. He is a member of the International Association of Culinary Professionals, where his first book, Tasting Wine and Cheese, an insider's guide to mastering the principles of pairing, was a finalist for Cookbook of the Year. Welcome to Specifically for Seniors, Adam. It's great to have you on. Good morning. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. When did you become first interested in choosing culinary arts as a profession? Uh, well, so the interest in food, like, I, you know, I've been enjoying eating and drinking for the vast majority of my life, but seeing it as, a, as an actual pursuit started about 20 years ago, just about 20. How did that come about? So I got into the culinary field through my undergraduate, which is bioanthropology. Now, after I was done with that, uh, I went into business, I went into banking, I went into all sorts of other things, but always sort of had a keen interest in culinary anthropology. Uh, you know, I grew up in a very strong food culture on both sides of my family. And so food was always sort of omnipresent in whatever I did. And so while I was a banker during the day, I was sort of a culinary anthropologist at night doing cooking and family recipes and reading and all sorts of stuff like that. And uh, eventually I moved from uh, the DC area where I was at the time back up to Boston where I'm from and was reading Jacques Pepin's autobiography. And in it, he mentioned the master's program that he created with Julia Child at Boston University. And up until I read those sentences, I thought the only way to further my culinary sort of interests was to go to, to culinary school to, you know, go be a chef. And, uh, you know, I was in my mid thirties at the time and you don't start a career that begins at 4 PM when you're 35 and married, that's not a good, it's not a good long-term strategy. And so I had sort of, you know, abandoned that idea until I found out that gastronomy program existed. And so, you know, through, through uh, the, the grace of my wife, letting me pursue it, uh, I went and started studying gastronomy, which was how this all began. And then you seem to focus on wine and cheese. Yeah. So in the, in the gastronomy program, the very first class I took was a cheese certification, uh, with the owner of a highly regarded cheese shop in the Boston area, uh, that like Julia child used to shop at and the French have knighted the owners for their work in cheese and stuff. It's a very, very lauded, uh, business. And so I took a semester of learning about cheese with the owner and at the end offered to intern 
and uh, who says no to free labor, right? So I interned for a while and it worked out well. So they offered me a full position and it went from there. And from there, you also became a travel writer? Yes. So, you know, once you start, or at least for me, I found once I started learning about food and learning about wine and getting certified and all that, inevitably the anthropological background crept in and I started becoming more and more interested in how varying cultures approached varying aspects of cuisine. So that lent itself to travel. And I'm a, you know, I'm an, I think I'm an okay writer. And so I had a couple of friends that had a, a, an edible magazine and said, Hey, would you write us a piece? And I did, and they loved it. And they said, would you do more? And all of a sudden I've got a book and, you know, it kind of took off. What's it like meeting the people who supply the food that you talk about? Um, I, you know, I think it's, at least for me, it's very humbling because they've got their priorities sorted out cleanly and lucidly, and they know it's important and they know it isn't. And they're, you know, they're practicing traditions that are centuries old and they're just, they're amazing people that make amazing things out of nature. And that makes you appreciate the foods that you're talking about even more. Absolutely. A hundred percent. It's, you know, I think one of the, the big sad things that, that I see when I go into a supermarket is somebody picking up, you know, they're at the butcher case and they pick up the little styrofoam thing with the steak on it that's plastic wrapped. And I, you know, I, I wonder how much they understand where that came from. You know, where did the spring onions come from? Where did the, you know, potatoes, whatever it is, do you, you know, how many people really kind of think about what went into you being able to have that? Let's move on to some of the questions that I'm sure everybody, including me, have. We walk into a wine shop and we look around and we are intimidated. We have good intentions. We're going to buy a bottle of, and then we get into the store and we blank out. How do we, how do we start selecting a wine? <laughs> <laughs> the million dollar question, right? Uh, you know, I, I think for me, when I talk to people about this sort of thing, I invite them to consider wine a little bit differently than they may have before. For a lot of people, when I ask them, hey, what's your favorite wine? They'll say Merlot or Cabernet Sauvignon or Chardonnay or Riesling or, you know, whatever. But in all those instances, they're naming an actual grape. So Riesling's a grape, Cabernet Sauvignon's a grape, Chardonnay's a grape. And the problem is when people... I think that not necessarily a problem, but part of the challenge is when people go into a wine shop and they say, hey, I like Chardonnay, what do you got? They will be shown a variety of Chardonnays. And the problem is when people, and that's fine, and there's nothing wrong with that, but when people want to expand a little bit, when people want to get more comfortable, sort of, you know, wine's a gigantic landscape, and so people want to explore it a little bit, by focusing on the grape, it causes people to inadvertently block out anything that isn't that grape. And the wine, you know, the person in the wine shop is giving you exactly what you asked for. And so people kind of wonder, you know, how do I, how do I get around this? And so the advice that I give is uh, to think about wine a little bit differently. Instead of thinking about wine in terms of the grape, think about it in terms of one of four characteristics. There are two for white, there are two for red. And for the white wines, it's, White wine with no oak influence, meaning no time spent in barrels. So like, for example, Sauvignon Blanc, most Sauvignon Blancs, almost all of them are without any oak. So they're very bright. They're very crisp, high acidity, lemonade -y. 
Then there's white wine with oak. And the big one for that is like Chardonnay. It's fuller bodied. It's richer. It sometimes has some vanilla notes. It's a little bit rounder. And then for red wine, red wine with little tannic influence, that sort of dryness after you take a sip of wine, right? Those wines, like for example, Pinot Noir tends to be low tannins, but very fruity. And then red wines with big tannins like Cabernet Sauvignon and Barolo and Chianti Classico and, you know, the ones that leave your mouth really kind of dry. And the reason why I suggest people think about it in those terms is because it lets them go into a wine shop now. And instead of saying, I would like a Sauvignon Blanc, in which case you'll get one, you can say, hey, I'm looking for a white wine that doesn't have any oak on it. Something bright and tangy, like you're thinking of adjectives instead of nouns. And so it allows the wine expert to say, well, have you tried Gruner Veltliner? Have you tried Vino Verde? Have you, you know, all these other wines that meet that criteria that aren't Sauvignon Blanc, that aren't Cabernet Sauvignon, whatever. You know, I want a big, I want a red wine with lots of tannins, big round. What do you got? And in doing that, I think it lets people expand and, and explore and find other wines that share those personality types, but, you know, aren't the thing that they're used to drinking. It broadens their horizons a bit. How do we know when we talk to a salesperson in a wine shop that he or she actually knows what they're talking about? That's a great question. Um, you know, I think one of the big in, in sort of tying this back into your last question, I think one of the big aspects of, of developing a, a, you know, a sort of a love for wine and an exploration of wine is finding a shop that you feel comfortable shopping in. And it could be anything. It could be a big chain store. It could be a tiny store in the corner. It's for me, it's more to do with the person finding somebody that you trust that will, you know, hear what you're saying and kind of make good recommendations based on it. Having that relationship lets you go up to them and say, Hey, I didn't like that last one. I loved the one before, you know, whatever. And you, there's a relationship kind of like what you, you know, in some small way, it's like when you have a doctor, you know, over time, they get to know you and can make better recommendations. Now, to directly answer your question, usually when you go into a wine shop and and you talk to somebody, you can kind of get a pulse on whether or not they're blowing smoke at you or not by the way they're describing the wine, by the way that, you know, oh, this is perfect for chicken and fish and Vietnamese food and spicy food and sweet food. Like, you know, you can tell when they're saying, well, this is perfect for literally everything. That's not the that doesn't happen. So, you know, if you have a uh, somebody that you're interacting with at a wine shop and they are asking a lot of questions, you know, they if you walk in and you just say, hey, I need a wine and they just grab the first bottle they see and say, wow, this is perfect. They're not they're not taking your best interests to heart, I feel, you know, but if they're asking questions and how, you know, what are you eating with it? Who's going to be drinking it? How many, you know, they're asking in questions that suggest they're really kind of, you know, recording this and, and processing it. And then I think you're in a good place. And you don't want somebody who says it's over there. No, I'm, you know, I mean, well, I think that's more to do with the shopper. Like some people just, you know, just don't teach me to fish, just point me to the pond and okay. And if that's the way you are fine, you know, certainly with, with the advent of all the resources available on your smartphone now, you can do all the research there is on the planet standing in front of a bottle that you couldn't do 20 years ago. So for people that like to do their own research that want to kind of dive in, 
you know, there are there are wine apps out there that you can just aim at the the UPC code on a bottle and it'll bring up every review there is of it. So for those people that want to be very self-sufficient in it, Mazel Tov. And for people that prefer talking to somebody that's tried this stuff, that, you know, is is educated in it, you can do that as well. Can you uh, tell us what some of those apps are? Uh, yeah, shoot. Hang on. That's a good question. Hang on one second. Sorry, I turned my phone off. I'm going to turn my phone back on. There, you know, it's it's interesting because there are a number of apps that people use that are very simple to navigate, which is great because different apps are going to give you different levels of capacity. And, you know, depending on what you want to do with it, um, you know, there are different apps that'll be appropriate. Like, for example, I've got an app on my phone called Seller Tracker. And it is a wine review site. So you type in a, you know, a name of a wine and it'll bring up reviews and stuff. But what's great about it for my use is I have a number of bottles in my cellar. And so it keeps track of what I paid for it, when I paid for it, when to drink it. You know, it's, it's much more comprehensive in terms of, of data accum uh, uh, accumulation. And for a lot of people, they don't care. They're like, just, is this a good bottle or not? Um, you know, there is another app called wine rating plus that is very good. There is a, hang on, let me look up the other one. <clears throat> Cause there, there are hundreds of them, but there are a few that are really kind of really good at what they do. So hang on, I'm loading that screen now. Vivino, V-I-V-I-N-O is another big one that you just scan. Vivino is great because you just scan the label and it brings up information on it. So it's very, very, very user-friendly. I think that's one that people will be interested in. Yeah, I think if you were to only pick one, Vivino's a great way to go. Okay, you alluded to this a little while ago, choosing a wine, pairing with food, red with meat, white with fish, I'm sure that's not all there is to pairing foods. <laughs> Larry, we know each other well enough now that I can I can share with you that I hate that sentence. <laughs> I loathe the whole, you know, red wine with meat, white wine with chicken and fish. And he, here's why. In in when it comes to pairing, that that thought, that that sort of blurb, right? White with chicken and fish, red with meat is a great catch-all that will get you out of trouble more often than not. It's the stop, drop, and roll. Like if you're only gonna remember one thing to do in a fire, stop, drop, and roll, right? Same thing with food and wine pairing. White with chicken and fish, red with meat, great. The problem, in my opinion, uh, is that it doesn't account for the nuance at all. Because when you say chicken, do you mean breaded chicken cutlets? Do you mean chicken fra diavolo? Is it chicken under a brick? Is it blackened barbecue? You know, when you say fish, are we talking about tilapia poached with Asian vegetables and white wine? Or are you talking about like a swordfish steak that's blackened on a grill? You know, when you talk about meat, is it a ribeye? Is it a pork roast? Is it, you know, a filet mignon, which between you and the lamppost doesn't have a whole lot of flavor to it. 
you know, the strength of a filet mignon is it's very tender. Like it's just touch it with a fork and it falls apart, but it doesn't get the same fat marbling the way that a ribeye does. So it doesn't have quite as an intense flavor. So when people say, you know, is it white wine with chicken and fish, red wine with meat? You know, what I like to say is if that's the only thing you can remember, if that's all the room you have, absolutely. But I think it's far more effective to not, don't think about what you're cooking. Think about how you're cooking it. And in, in my world, you know, the way we say it is don't pair to the protein, pair to the preparation. Because it's far more important for the wine to match up with the sauce that's on the dish or the spice profile or the herbs in it or whatever, because that's where all the flavor is going to be. Now, you know, there are generalities. If you've got a big old thick steak, yeah, a glass of Cabernet is going to be great as opposed to a glass of, you know, Sauvignon Blanc. But by thinking more about how this stuff is prepared, you can come up with more, to me, more interesting pairings. Because like one of my favorite pairings in the world is like a, a like a, a really fat and uh, marbled, a really marbled piece of steak, like a ribeye that's grilled. But as it's going out to the table, I put a little bit of lemon juice on it, a little bit of butter and some parsley and have it with an oak Chardonnay. And it's fantastic because a really big bodied Chardonnay can handle the fattiness of a ribeye, no problem. And then by introducing the fresh herbs and the lemon juice, you've brought those flavors of the wine to the meat and it links beautifully to me. Things we never knew or realized or knew, but didn't want to admit to. I eat a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Are there good wines at various price points? Absolutely. That's, you know, I think one of the big misconceptions about the wine world is that you have to spend tons of money to, uh, you know, to get any kind of real quality. A lot of it has to do with the perception that bigger cost is better. You know, the more money, the better it must be kind of thing. Um, And, you know, there is a little bit of truth to that, you know, in the same way that a $50,000 car is going to be built better than a $20,000 car. But in the wine world, part of the consideration is like, for example, where is it coming from? Uh, You know, wines from Portugal, for example, don't have anywhere near the reputation or cachet in the American market the way that French or Italian wines do. So they can't get the same prices that the French or the Italians can. And so you can get outstanding wines from Portugal at half the cost of what their Italian or French counterparts would be. And even within the big countries, like even within France, for example, regions that are not Burgundy or Bordeaux can't get the same price point, right? So you can get stuff from the Languedoc, you can get stuff from, you know, the Northwest, all sorts of different areas that are excellent values because they just can't command the same price. They don't have the reputation of a Bordeaux or, or Burgundy. So, you know, in my estimation, once you climb past eight ish to nine ish dollars a bottle, you can start getting into some, some really good stuff. Now, yeah, if you have more to spend on a bottle, you can pick up nuance and characteristics that you can't find at a lower price point. But I think that's a separate consideration from, you know, can I get a quality bottle of wine? At a, at a reasonable price. So choosing a wine in a restaurant is approximately the same thing. It, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, part of it is if I'm in a restaurant with a wine list and they have a sommelier, you know, more and more restaurants now have a wine expert on hand. 
Um, you know, I'll certainly interact with them and say, Hey, you know, this is what I'm looking for. What do you think? But if I'm left on my own to, to look at a wine list, I'm looking for, you know, regions that might not be as popular that they, again, the, the value is there. So a lot of Spanish wines are excellent values because for whatever reason, they're just not sort of held at such high esteem as Italian or, or French, but the Spanish wines are spectacular. So you know, I'm looking for opportunities on wine lists to find stuff that are a little bit off the beaten path that that allow more value to come through. Are wines from the United States on a comparative level? Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, I think one of the big uh, and, and I shouldn't say that because it's changed in the past 10, 15 years. But historically, people, you know, didn't think that American wines were up to the same level as French or Italian or, you know, whatever. And so when, you know, when you say, oh, I want a really nice bottle of wine, people think of Bordeaux and they think of, you know, historically or, you know, Barolo from Italy or whatever. Nowadays, California, Oregon, Washington State, you know, they're all they've always been sort of the stalwart American producers. Um, But now you've got wines from Arizona that are outstanding. You've got wines from the Finger Lakes in New York that are incredible. Uh, You know, I was in Hill Country in Texas not long ago tasting a bunch of vineyards and their stuff's great. It's, it's a different game now because information is much more easily had and the knowledge is there to, to execute. The question that comes up, how do we develop our taste for wines? Do you mean how to become a better taster or how do you like wine? Or I want to make sure I understand correctly. That's a good question. Um, we we drink a wine and we say, oh, this is good. But how do we become more uh, proficient in describing our taste for wines? Okay. So the num- I, to me, the number one thing is to be conscious of tasting things. And it's tasting everything, not just wine. Because so wine has all these aromatic compounds in it and all these flavor compounds in it. And they're made up of chemicals, right? Chemical compounds that are found in other things. So when you say a wine tastes like cherries, it's because the compound, the actual chemical compound that makes a cherry taste like a cherry to you is part of the, the profile, part of the personality of the wine. So to me, the, you know, one of the big secrets is pay attention to all the other foods that you eat. So when you have an orange, take just a moment and consciously, you know, sort of say to yourself, hey, I'm eating an orange. This is what it smells like. This is what it tastes like. Like really pay attention to it. And what will happen is you'll start building up this muscle memory. And so, you know, when you start doing that over and it only takes a little while, like it only takes a few weeks. It's not like you have to do years of this. But if every time you ate an apple, you paid attention to what that apple tasted like. I guarantee you the next time you have a wine with apple notes in it, they will become more readily apparent to you because you, you built the muscle memory. You've intentionally worked out that muscle. And I think that's the number one step is just being aware of all the stuff that you eat and then looking for those characteristics in the wines that you have just that little step. You know, every time I have a coffee, I take 30 seconds to smell it and really pay attention to it. Now, anytime I see, you know, I have a glass of wine that's got a coffee note in it. It leaps off the page at me. One other question about choosing a wine. We've been invited to a dinner party. No mention of the menu. We want to bring a wine as a gift. 
What's a safe choice? To me, champagne. Champagne is always, 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 always. It goes with so many things. It has an it inherently is fun, and it it sort of says celebration right out of the bottle. It's it covers a lot of ground. Okay, how do we choose a champagne? <laughs> Again, going back to you know having any kind of relationship with a with a uh, a wine shop or you know a wine expert, you can reach out to me and I can help. But you know, part of the part of what's great about the wine industry now is that a lot of shops you can go into. You can go into a big store, you know, one of the big chain stores, and they'll have shelf talkers, the little messages with each bottle that have reviews on them and scores on them and characteristics on them and, you know, find sort of consider what kind of price point you want to be in, see what they've got. And you'll find one that has a great review or sounds appealing to you and go with that. Temperature of wine. Yep. Room temperature of 50, 60 degrees for red, chilled for white. Is that consistent or? That so that is consistent, um, you know. It, I think it's for me. It's better to think of it in terms of chilled, cold, cellar temperature, slightly warm. You know, like though rather than specific temperatures, um, because a lot of people don't have wine fridges. They don't have you know surface thermometers to read the bottle temperature and all that. So it's. It, it for some it can be hard to know am i at 40 degrees or is this 50 degrees or you know whatever um in general bubbles want to be really really cold like you want bubbles to be cold 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 you want white wines to be chilled so not cold 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 chilled and then reds you want to be typically what you know what we say cellar temperature meaning if you have a cellar in your house when you go down there it's cool to slightly chilly like that neck of the woods. Um, but the easiest way that I, when people ask me, how do I figure that all out? The easiest thing I tell them is if it's a bottle of bubbles, take it out of the fridge when you're going to drink it, take it out, open it, drink it. If it's a white wine and it's been in the fridge, take it out of the refrigerator about 15 minutes before you want to drink it. That gives it just enough time to go from cold to chilled. If it's a light bodied red wine, like Pinot Noir, for example, I put it in the fridge for 15 minutes before I drink it. That just lets it, you know, go from room temperature. And, you know, for a lot of people, room temperature is the Ikea wine rack in the living room. But if your living room 70 degrees, then eventually that bottle is going to be 70 degrees. So you need you need to pull some heat off it a little bit. And 15 minutes in the fridge for reds takes care of it. So. Bubbles, drink right out of the fridge. Whites, take them out of the fridge 15 minutes before you're going to drink it. Reds, put it in the fridge for 15 minutes before you're going to drink it. Let's move on a little bit. Choosing a cheese. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, this is as complex or even more complex than choosing a wine. Yep. Briefly, I know this should be a course or reading <laughs> your book, and we'll get to that in a minute. But how do you select the cheese? So there are a few different ways you can do it. Um, you know, when in doubt, the saying, what grows together goes together, tends to work out well. So, you know, if you're, for example, if you're drinking Chianti, 
the region, the Tuscan regional cheeses will go pretty, you know, the odds are you're going to be in great shape for the, for the, for the pairing with the Chianti. Okay. Um, beyond that, think about the characteristics of the wine. Is it bright and tangy? You know, could it cut through like a really rich, soft, creamy cheese? Is it like a red wine that's got a lot of body and structure? So it would benefit from having a cheese that's a little bit drier and a little bit saltier. You know, think like Parmigiano Reggiano, for example, right, is a much more intense flavor than like a French Camembert, for example. So thinking about the main flavors of what you're drinking, the style of what you're drinking, and what you want to do with it. Do you want bubbles to cut through the the ooey gooey, or do you want a rich wine like a Riesling that will complement the ooey gooey, you know, of whatever cheese you're having, for example? You just mentioned a region, a grape, and not a taste. Yep. <laughs> See, I learned. <laughs> uh, what's what's a Riesling? So Riesling is the name of the grape. Uh, you know, it's best known in Germany, Austria, Alsace, France, although there are versions all over the world. Um, and in the, you know, alluding back to that earlier, don't think of grapes, you know, wine in terms of the grapes. Riesling is a very full-bodied, rich, round white wine. And so it is a great partner for cheeses that have similar big, rich, round, you know, high fat, very coating, cream sauces, that kind of stuff. Um, and it's also really good. Riesling also happens to be really good at mitigating spicy foods. So if you like wasabi with your sushi, if you like sort of cayenne pepper in your fried chicken recipe, if you're, you know, if you like jalapeno, like spice, Riesling does a great job at sort of, of kind of mellowing everything out. Does your book cover these topics? It does. So the book, and thank you for asking the book is broken down into different chapters and each chapter is a different wine style. So sparkling, you know, light white wines, full bodied whites, light reds, big reds, dessert wines, that kind of thing. And each chapter is broken down into specific varietals, specific grapes. So I wanted the book to be able to be kind of a reference book. If people wanted it, um, it can read just like a regular book, but if you just need to go straight to, Hey, I'm drinking Merlot tonight. You can go to the Merlot page and it talks about the grape. It talks about the wines that you can expect, sort of what different Merlots across the world will be like. It talks about general principles about how to pair it. And then for each grape, I give you a specific, like, don't teach me to fish, just give me the fish. Um, you know, it's a single, if you just want me to tell you what to do, go do that. So it gives you information to empower yourself to make decisions or I just, you know, just go get that and you're all set. So it kind of, you know, matches both. So if we had a copy of your book and we're going into a Thai restaurant, you could, uh, the book would help advise us what wine to have with our dishes. Uh, you know, generally speaking, yes. Although the book is cheese centric as sort of the main pairing partner. Now the descriptions of the wines are sufficient that you can expand past just cheese. But this book was meant to be sort of directly a wine and cheese pairing book. Although again, the information you garner from it is easily applicable to, to Thai food, to, you know, barbecue, whatever. And the book title again is what? It's called Tasting Wine and Cheese. 
An Insider's Guide to Mastering the Principles of Pairing. Where's the book available? Uh, it's, you know, I've, I've had the good fortune of being in local bookstores. Um, of course on Amazon, it's available on barnesandnoble.com. It's kind of, you know, on the inter on the internet, it's everywhere. Anything else we missed? <laughs> there, wow. There's a Sorry, silly we, question. We could do this for two weeks. <laughs> no, I think, yeah, the one thing that I want to get out there is when it comes to enjoying wine, enjoying food, pairing, whatever, the number one thing, the absolute number one thing is just if it makes you happy, do it. It doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. Okay. It should be fun. It should be adventurous. It should be a great experience. I don't want people stressing about, you know, am I doing it right? There's no wrong answer. It's simple. Try something. If you like it, do it again. If you don't like it, try something else and just repeat as necessary. Adam, this has been this has been a lot of fun. I know I learned stuff. Uh, <laughs> I am not a wine expert by any means. Uh, this has been a great talk. Thanks for coming on specifically for seniors. If you found this podcast interesting, fun, or helpful, tell your friends and family and click on the follow or subscribe button. We'll let you know when new episodes are available. You've been listening to Specifically for Seniors. We'll talk more next time. Stay connected.